0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, again, we thank you that we have your word to guide and direct us, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Scripture says it's in the light of your word that we see light, which means that your word becomes our thinking and therefore informs every dimension of life for us. For your revelation is sufficient, your word is sufficient, your grace is sufficient. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would be uh, submissive to the teaching of your word and that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the Bible. What's so significant about the Bible for the believer? The Bible informs us. It is God's communication to us, and it teaches us how to interpret everything in our experience. We can come up with all kinds of things that are true with a small T, just on the basis of empiricism or rationalism, but we don't really know, ultimately, how to interpret Things around us, society, societal functions, politics, government, law, education, all of these things ultimately are informed for the believer from the Word of God. So that the Word of God becomes the starting point for all knowledge. The Word of God becomes the starting point for interpretation. And it is on the basis of the Word of God that... Okay. All right. As I was saying... The Bible is God's word to man. It's not just man's word about God. It's not just man's word about uh, his religious experience with God. It is God giving special revelation to man, and on the basis of that special revelation, then man is able to understand and properly interpret his environment. But because of sin, and because of arrogance, and because of the way sin affects human thinking, man seeks to interpret and define his environment, whatever that entails, whether it's nature, whether it's society, whether it's government, government, politics, law, economics, history, any of the dimensions of, of human experience or human intellection, Man seeks to interpret that autonomously, that is, independent of God's revelation. But the believer comes along, and because of the information that we have from the Word of God, then we're able to understand what is going on in different arenas of life. Specifically tonight, we're looking at an area involving social relationships. And this comes out of our study from... Uh, the study of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and their sexual sin specifically homosexuality and so we're asking the question what does the Bible teach about homosexuality now we don't want to make the mistake that some extremists do of singling out homosexuality as a unique sin the Bible does not portray it as a unique sin there are certain elements about it that are more perverse and more damaging socially than other sins but there are other sins that are uh, have equal or nearly equal damaging social consequences all sin is sin before god but not all sin in the human realm has the same consequences in terms of human relationships human society and and um, in terms of of, uh, the success or failure of a culture. You go back to Leviticus, and you see that homosexuality is prohibited within the Mosaic Law. Now, some people have a problem with this because they say, how can you encode or codify laws against sexual sin? I mean, who's going to go around and be the sexual sin police? Well, see, if you even ask that question, your starting point, your presupposition for asking that question is not biblical, because the New Testament commentary on the law is that the law is holy and just and perfect, and that middle ver—I mean that middle noun or adjective is so important the law is just. That means it's a perfect expression of divine justice within the human realm. So if within the framework of a legislative code, which the Mosaic Law was for a nation, God deemed it necessary to have criminal penalty for certain sexual sins, we have to say, well, what's the reason and why was it there? And we can't say, well, you know, that's, that's not really enforceable, so it shouldn't have been there. That implies a weakness in terms of God's omniscience in terms of injustice and in terms of revelation. Whatever else the law is and however else it was distorted by the Pharisees, we have to remember that as it stands in the word, it is a perfect code of law. Now that doesn't mean that the Mosaic law as a law code should be applied to any other cultures because it was unique in some ways to Israel because of its theocratic status and because of its uh, role within God's uh, God's redemptive plan in history. But all I'm saying is that starting with the Mosaic Law and p- previous to that in uh, Genesis 19, it's clear that homosexuality is always viewed negatively. It's always viewed as a sin. Leviticus 18.22, You shall not lie with a male as with a ab- woman. It is an abomination. uh, Leviticus 20, verse 13, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So it's viewed as a capital crime. That's how seriously God views us. Why is that? It goes back to the divine institutions. Let's think in terms of biblical framework. The divine institutions begin with individual responsibility. Man is responsible for the decisions he makes before God and God will hold him accountable. That accountability relates not only to eternality, but it also relates to how man as man lives in history, so that when man reaches a certain critical mass in terms of rebellion against God, God lowers the boom in terms of historical judgment. When God called out a nation, Israel, because his purpose was to to promote them as a kingdom of priests, They were to be holy and separate as unto the Lord, and so the penalties for certain infractions were perhaps harsher than they would be in other cultures. Adultery and homosexuality both carried the death penalty. Now, why is that? Because it it was an attack on both divine institution number two, the marriage, and divine institution number three, the family. The purpose of marriage, biblically speaking, is the propagation of the species. It's not limited to that, but that's part of the purpose that going back to the Dominion Mandate, the reason when, when God gives the first command to Adam and the woman, Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight, says he creates man in the image of God, male and female he created created them uh, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky. They are to rule as a team and they are to do what? They are to multiply and fill the earth. So, this idea of propagation of the species, of producing children, and family is the environment for passing values on from one generation to the next, is inherent in the divine institution of family. So, if when that breaks down, uh, through homosexuality, through adultery, which is an attack on marriage, and through other, uh, they're not just sins, they are in the Mosaic Law, they're viewed as crimes, and they're viewed as crimes because they destroy the nation uh, internally. And so that's why they have such a serious consequence. Romans 1.18 and 1.24, in that whole section we see God's view against uh, homosexuality in 118 we see the wrath of god this is his historical judgment against nations and against men in time is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness so this sets up a category in verse 18 that what follows is going to be a catalog of various sins that are Identified as ungodliness and unrighteousness, and in verse twenty-four we read, "Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves." And that included, although I lost the verse there, that also includes down through verse twenty-eight. That includes homosexuality. Let me turn to that real quick. Verse twenty. Verse 26, "...for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged their natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust what is shameful, and receiving themselves a penalty of their error which was due." And then verse uh, 29, "...being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, uh, strife, and more and more sins." And all this is part of the fact that God is giving them over to these unnatural desires. So what this shows us is that the Bible views God's original creation and what is natural. What is natural is not what goes on in what we call nature. What is natural is that which is God's intent and purpose. Then we look at 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, where Paul says, Because we know this... That the law is not made for a righteous person. And here he's not talking about the Mosaic law. He is talking about law in general. The law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. See, the purpose for law in principle is to rein in disorder, criminality, and uh, anarchy. But for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So what we see here is that sodomy and fornication are listed among many other sins. They're not singled out as special categories of sins. Now, the word for fornicator is the Greek word pornos, which is where we get our English word pornography, which literally means fornication or immorality. The word is used 44 times in the New Testament. It's always identified as sin, and fornication refers to sexual activity between two partners who are not married to each other. One may be married, the other one not married. Uh, In that case, it's adultery for the married one, and it's just fornication for the unmarried one. But it has to do with any kind, it's a broad category, any kind of sexual activity between two people who are not married to each other. And it involves heterosexual or homosexual activity. Uh, Sodomy, on the other hand, is the Greek word arsenokoides. From the Greek word arsen, which is a male, plus the word koite, which refers to a bed. So the root meaning of the word was Two males lying in bed uh, are, came to mean homosexuality, and it's used in this is the primary word that's used for homosexuality in the New Testament. Now another passage where we have homosexuality listed among just another list of sins is in 1 Corinthians 6 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, it's located within a list of sinful activities. It's not broken out as some special category of sin. All sin is a violation of the standard of God, so all sin falls into that category. And must be treated the same. Every one of us has different sin patterns. Some of you are arrogant. Some of you are liars. Some of you are deceptive. Some of you have uh, trends towards uh, one kind of sexual aberration. Some of you may be another one. Uh, some pe- some of you are covetous. Whatever it may be, those are the trends of your sin nature. And it's not for us to necessarily judge someone just because they of their particular sin or not. That's what God is going to do. But we have to have certain standards in terms of society, which is what we're going to look at. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, the word fornicator is from the word pornos, as we just saw in 1 Timothy 1. Uh, The word adulterer is a more restricted term. It's the Greek word moikos. And the root meaning of moikos is unfaithfulness to a covenant. That's why it applies to spiritual adultery, because the believer is being unfaithful to God. And when it applies to marriage, they're being unfaithful to the marriage contract. So this uh, word is often used to describe those who are married and engage in sex with those with whom they are not married, breaking the marriage vow. The word homosexual here is the word malakos, which is in some versions it's translated effeminate. And the Root meaning, literal meaning of the word had to do with that which was soft to the touch. Often it was applied to clothing that was made of a particularly uh, soft material. And figuratively, figuratively it w- referred to a man who was effeminate a, a, a and allowed himself to be sexually abused in homosexual relationships. And then we have the word uh, sodomite. Which is a translation of the same word we saw over in 1 Timothy 1, arsenacoitis. Once again, referring to a homosexual. So you have four words there fornicator, adulterer, homosexual, and sodomy. They're all broken out as part of this list of sins. There's similar lists in other passages, such as Galatians chapter 5. Uh, 19 through 21, the works of the flesh. You have other passages in Ephesians chapter 4, Revelation uh, 21, which indicate that those who continuously participate in certain sins forfeit their rewards and an inheritance in the kingdom. The point that I'm saying is that we have to understand that the Bible clearly tells us that these are, these are sins. These are wrong. And we live in an era today when there's a homosexual lobby, a homosexual political activist lobby that wants to promote the idea that homosexuality is normal and healthy and there are no consequences for allowing homosexual relationships, permitting homosexual relationships or same-sex marriages in our culture. And this is just another sample of what is going on in terms of culture wars. We have in this country a historical foundation that is built on Judeo-Christian ethics. In other words, the founding fathers, whether they were... Believers or not, they were. their thinking was informed by biblical theism, that there was a God, that that God interacted with mankind. He had revealed absolutes to mankind, and they thought within this absolute framework. And so they built this into the Constitution, into the law of the land, that it was necessary in order to preserve and protect a nation from the baser desires and elements within the nation, that there should be laws that applied even to sexual activity, because they recognize that if there is a legal permissiveness, then this rolls over into a moral permissiveness that ultimately erodes the integrity and the virtue of the nation, and then the republic will collapse. And so... Uh, that was biblical theism, but today we operate on a worldview that is called naturalism, and these are in collision, and we see this collision day in and day out, and if you are a believer and you understand what the Bible teaches, you know that over and over and over again you run into issues and application of the law to society, to social issues, and you are informed because you understand what the Bible says, and so you come you will approach these from a different vantage point. In theism, we understand that all human beings are distorted by sin. We're all warped by sin. Every one of us, we have a sin nature. And that sin nature has various trends that manifest themselves in different ways at different times. And sin and temptation hovers over us uh, continuously. And the only way we can resist it, the only way we can change is by application of doctrine. Whereas in naturalism, you have no God, you have no absolutes. The only absolutes come out of society, and there's no sin. Whatever is, is okay. That's the main idea in naturalism. Whatever is, is okay. There's no ultimate right or wrong. In postmodernism, right and wrong are just social constructs, so you just need to change the social construct. In theism, homosexual attraction is abnormal. Ever since the fall, we live in an abnormal world. The world was created without death, without any sin, and that was normal. When the fall occurred and the consequent curse on, on the, all of creation as a result of sin, everything, much of what we experience is abnormal. It is less than what God intended. In naturalism, in naturalism though, homosexual attraction is normal. Heterosexual attraction is normal. Whatever is, is normal. It goes back to your ultimate value. of Whatever is, is okay. There's no such thing as sin and evil. In theism, therefore, because all men are warped by sin, homosexual attraction is abnormal. Therefore, all homosexual attraction is sin. Whereas in naturalism, all homosexual activity is okay. All activity is okay because you don't have an overriding absolute. In theism, though, there is forgiveness for sin, forgiveness for all sin. There is no sin that is not taken care of by the grace of God and the cross of Christ. And change is possible. And in the Christian life is all about change. That's what sanctification is all about, transforming us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So A Christian who is growing is a Christian who is changing as the Word of God and the Spirit of God change and transform your life. In naturalism, there's no guilt for anything. Nothing's wrong, so there's no guilt. I'm okay, you're okay. Change is not possible. Homosexuals are born that way. That's what they claim. So this is why we have this this battle that goes on in our culture today. And a hundred years ago, it would have not been necessary to have taken as much time investigating some of these things as we are tonight. But we have to today because of the culture in which we live. We live in a world where there is a, an active homosexual lobby that is constantly pushing and pushing and pushing to change society. And this, if they have their way, will have long-term damaging consequences socially. So believers have a responsibility to function as believers in terms of being salt and light. Now let's look at some of the myths about homosexuality. There's four myths I want to look at. First of all, the myth that homosexuality is normal, healthy, and desirable. Second, the myth that homosexuals are born that way. I got into a discussion with someone not long ago, and uh, they said, well, how can you believe that that homosexuality is wrong? They're born that way. And I said, no, they're not. There's absolutely no evidence uh, that they're born that way. Oh, yeah, you, you know, you hear it on the news all the time. The media says it. Uh, in fact, just two weeks ago, I was watching uh, Geraldo Rivera and uh, Bill O'Reilly in a conversation. And Geraldo, made, they were talking about child molesters and pedophiles. And Geraldo made some statement related to homosexuals and so said, yeah, but they're born that way. And it went completely unchallenged. And it's these kinds of statements that you hear from the media, hear from different celebrities, hear from certain uh, others in our society. And it's a myth that just keeps promoted. People believe that. They're born that way. There's a gay gene. Homosexuals make up 10% of the population. This is another figure you hear bandied about quite frequently. Fourth, change is impossible. Homosexuals can't change. It's wrong to change them. You change them, you're going to warp them. Just let them be what they are. Remember, whatever is is okay, and that's normal, right? See, everything flows out of a certain presupposition of naturalism. Okay, let's examine that first myth. Homosexuality is normal, healthy, and desirable. Their view is, quote, homosexuality is not an illness. It is not something that needs to be cured. We are normal, natural, and healthy people. That was a statement by Perry Jude Radicek, member of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force on Nightline. However, contrary to that, we have certain statements such as the biblical statement in Romans one to 24-32, which clearly states that homosexuality, whether it is male-to-male or woman-to-woman, is unnatural. It is not normal. Second, every, we have to recognize that every human being is distorted, warped by the fall. I want you to understand this. You're not normal. I know that may come as a shock to some of you. I'm not normal. That may not surprise any of you. But we're not normal. We all are distorted and warped by the fall, and we don't have any right to look down our nose at somebody else because of their sin. But what we do have a right to as believers is take a stand for what ought to be, what is the absolute, but in a non-judgmental manner. Third, just because something feels right, doesn't make it right. Remember, to somebody who is born blind, blindness seems normal. To someone who is born deaf, deafness seems normal. Just because something feels normal, doesn't make it normal. The the Bible defines for us what normal is, not our feelings. So, our conclusion is homosexuality is not natural or normal. Now, by nature, by natural, I don't mean according to nature, because you'll always find somebody who will come along and say, well, you know, there are examples of uh, male on male activity among certain animals in nature. Well, if you analyze all the examples, they usually fall into categories where one male is, uh, it's, it's not a normal, it's not an ongoing relationship. It's, I mean, it's not ongoing sexual activity. It is one male trying to show dominance or territorial uh, uh, dominance over another male. It is not. doesn't fit the same category as what we're talking about in relation to human beings. Furthermore, it's, there, there's a false presupposition there that man is an animal just like all the other animals. And biblically, man is separate and distinct. Another issue related to normality has to do with the the big uh, book on mental health and mental, what is it, mental health and mental, MH, my mind went blank on that, MHMR, uh, what? Mental Health and Mental Retardation, I thought that's what it was, MHMR, which is the standard Bible for mental diseases that psych, uh, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists use. And in 1973, due to pressure from the gay rights movement, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, declassified homosexuality as a mental disorder. So they'll say, see, it's, it's not a mental disorder anymore. Well, let's look at why they did that. First of all, the three years leading up to that were marked by uh, extreme uh, protests physical violence, disruptions, and chaos at the meetings of the APA. Intimidation was the rule. Finally, in 1973, they mailed out a vote, a ballot, to the 25,000 members of the APA, and only 25%... Responded. So that means that only about 6,000, a little more than 6,000 members uh, responded, and 50, only 58% of those voted in favor of declassifying homosexuality as a mental disorder. Dr. Uh, uh, Charles Sackerides who was at the meetings was an expert in the area of homosexuality had some interesting comments to make regarding this he said that militant homosexual groups continue to attack any psychiatrist or psychoanalyst who dared to present his findings as to the dangers or as to the dangers of psychopathology uh, as to this, excuse me, I cut that quote short. As to the psychopathology of homosexuality before national or local meetings of psychiatrists or in public forums. In other places, he referred to the decision of 1973 as the medical hoax of the century. Now, he was at the t- at the time that he wrote this, he had been involved in uh, the study of homosexuality for over 20 years, and one of the was one of the nation's leading experts on homosexuality. In 1977, as a follow-up to the 1973 decision, 10,000 members of the APA were polled at random. 69% of those polled said that homosexuality was a pathological adaptation. Now, that's quite a bit different from the vote earlier. 18% of the members polled disagreed with that statement, and 13% weren't sure. So you have an overwhelming majority. Majority of 69% still viewed homosexuality as a pathological disorder. Now, is homosexuality healthy? Well, let's look at the pra- actual practices within homosexual relationships. Only 10% of homosexuals are relatively monogamous, or in terms of the Institute for Sex Research, that was Kinsey's organization, relatively less. Promiscuous. You'll see from a quote I have later on from a uh, pastor of a gay, the gay metropolitan community church that monogamy has no meaning within the gay community. Sixty percent of homosexuals have more than 250 lifetime sex partners. Twenty-eight percent have more than 1,000 lifetime sex partners. Seventy-nine percent admit that more than half of their sex partners are strangers And lesbians, though they are less promiscuous than males, they are more volatile and unstable in their relationships. Now, this does not fit anyone's definition of that which is healthy. In contrast, the Bible says that any sexual activity outside of marriage is fornication and is a sin, and therefore is destructive. Sin, by definition, is self-destructive. There are 44 references to fornication in the Bible, all in the context of describing it as sin, and homosexuality is never mentioned anywhere in the Bible in a positive context. Congressman William Denemeyer made the comment that if homosexuality is a perversion of what is natural, then homosexuals must look at their own conduct in an entirely different light and explain it in less satisfying terms. And this is the point. They keep pressing this issue that it's normal, healthy, and desirable, because if it's not, then they have to do some serious self-examination. And in arrogance, none of us like to do any self-examination. Our sins make us comfortable, thank you very much, and we just don't want to change. But, you know, I don't know why they get the right to legitimize their sin. I want to legitimize my sins. Okay? Don't you? That's the issue. Ongoing myths about homosexuality. Homosexuals are born that way. This is perhaps the most promoted myth, widespread myth, and the most erroneously held myth. There is, first of all, no evidence of a gay gene. None whatsoever. Uh, if, just think about it, if there was a gay gene and homosexuality was inherited, it would have died out. Just stands to reason. It's not going to be promoted. This whole idea of a gay gene was allegedly substantiated by a 1991 study by Dr. Simon LeVay who admits himself that he was biased in his analysis because he's a homosexual. It was a flawed study for a number of reasons. His research consisted of studying the brains of 41 cadavers, including 19 homosexual males. He found, in his conclusion, that a tiny area of the brain believed to control sexual activity in the hypothalamus was less than half the size in gay men than in heterosexuals. In other words, going through and doing these autopsies on these brains, uh, homosexuals had a smaller hypothalamus than heterosexuals. Well, this study was immediately seized upon as irrefutable evidence that homosexuals are born gay, that there's something inherent biological, and so it's not volitional. It has nothing to do with environment. It has to do with their being born that way. They can't do anything about it. However, this whole study doesn't resolve anything because there wasn't enough data to determine whether or not the smaller hypothalamus was there before they were at birth, or whether it was the result of homosexual activity. Furthermore, there are other problems indicated uh, in the study. First of all, all 19 of the homosexual men had died of AIDS. So, was the smaller hypothalamus related to AIDS, or was it related to homosexuality? Second problem, there was no way to know the sexual history of the, the alleged heterosexual men. Some of them may have been bisexual. Third, there was no way to determine if the smaller hypothalamuses were the cause or the result of homosexuality. And finally, Dr. LeVay admitted that it was not a dispassionate scientific study because he was homosexual himself. Then there have been various twin studies that have been actually only one twin study that's been cited. This is where they look at identical twins that are both homosexual to see what the percentage of concordance is where both of the twins, the identical twins, are uh, homosexual. William H. Masters, a co-director of the Masters and Johnson Institute, well known for their studies in sexuality, Stated that the genetic theory of homosexuality has been generally discarded today. John Dechecco, the professor of psychiatry at San Francisco State University and also editor of the 25-volume Journal of Homosexuality, wrote in a 1989 USA Today article, quote, The idea that people are born into one type of sexual behavior is entirely foolish. Homosexuality uh, is a behavior, not a condition, and something that some people can and do change, just like they sometimes change other tastes and personality traits. Now, this is from a homosexual. So there is no such thing as a gay gene. Homosexuals aren't born that way. The twin study is based on a study in 1991 by Bailey and Pillard, and they admitted that there were methodological flaws in the study. The subjects they recruited were volunteers that, that uh, volunteered through advertisements in homosexual journals. So you have a flawed study group to begin with. Other twin studies that have been done since then have failed to support their findings. They said that 52% of the, uh, the, of the uh, twins that they studied, that where one was homosexual, both were homosexual, but nothing else has substantiated that. Uh, number at all, remember, if genetics were the determinant, then the results would need to be one hundred percent concordance because in identical twins they had the same exact DNA, the same exact genetic makeup so what 's true for one would be true if they both have blue eyes, it'd both be homosexual now we 'll go to the next myth Third myth homosexuals make up ten percent of the population we 've all heard that one out of every ten are homosexual. I don't want you counting and looking around. This has been quoted in in periodicals and newspapers like USA Today. 25 million Americans are homosexual. Washington Times states 10% of men, 5% of women are homosexual. American Psychiatric Association said 10% of uh, Americans are homosexual. Now, where do they get this number? Where does that come from? It comes from a 1948 study done by William Kinsey. It's a very famous study. Now, in that study, he looked at 5,300 subjects. 25% of those 5,300 participants in the study were prison inmates. 44% had had homosexual relations in prison. Get a lot of Saturday night brides in prison. So it's a flawed study. Several hundred male prostitutes were also included in the study. So you have a, a a loaded uh study group to begin with. Furthermore, his conclusion is really misstated. What he concluded was that ten percent of white males were more or less key word, more or less, exclusively homosexual for at least three years between the age of sixteen and sixty five. He doesn't conclude that ten percent of American males are homosexual. His conclusion was vastly different from that. But as is typical of popular media, what you get is a distorted version of the conclusion that's popularized. In uh, 1984 to 1988, there was the Foreman study, which concluded that only 1.7% of American males were homosexual. Now, if you have a political movement, it's a vastly different Issue if you've got 10 percent of the population versus 1.7 percent of the population. The University of Chicago in 1989 studied uh, uh, and had a study that came out and said that less than one percent of American males were exclusively homosexual. See, we've just been brainwashed by this this propaganda machine from the gay uh, the whole gay movement. Finally, they say that change is impossible, but this just isn't true. As a believer, we know that change is always possible. God is in the business of changing us from dirty, rotten, stinking sinners who are self-absorbed to believers who are mature and who uh, bring their sin nature under control through walking by the Holy Spirit. The fact that change is impossible is contradicted by the large number of testimonials from ex-gays. There are a number of ministries that are related to uh, helping those who are coming out of the homosexual lifestyle. I met a man up in uh Connecticut when I was up there named Stephen Bennett and he has Stephen Bennett Ministries and you can check him out on the on the uh, uh on the internet and he was deeply immersed in the homosexual lifestyle until he was in his early twenties. He's been married now for fourteen years, has two or three two two beautiful daughters and a beautiful wife and and has a tremendous ministry to uh helping homosexuals come out of that lifestyle. So you have numerous Christian ministries that help those with homosexuality. You have story after story after story. So we conclude that through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, all sin can be dealt with. So we've collapsed the entire foundation for the gay rights agenda. Now the big issue right now, of course, is same-sex marriage. And this is what gets all the press, and you've had a couple court decisions. In California, just, uh legislature just passed a, a bill to allow same-sex marriage, which the governor is probably going to veto. And uh, Texas has a Proposition 2 coming up on the November ballot uh, related to uh, approval of a, a marriage protection amendment. And so, this is a hot issue. How do, what are Christians supposed to think about same-sex relationships? Are they just okay? Is this just a good thing because they commit to a legal contractual relationship? Well, what are the facts? First of all, the whole idea of same-sex marriage is an attempt to meet, uh, legitimate needs. That is, we all have needs for acceptance, approval, affection, love, relationship. And it's an attempt to resolve that in illegitimate and ungodly ways. And it is never the job of law to substantiate that which is uh, evil. Second, homosexuals are outside of God's created intention for sex. There is a complementary facet to the male-female soul and the male and female body. Just one example of this, if you hadn't thought about it, when God lowered the boom and the curse and explained the different dynamics of the results of sin, the impact of sin on the woman was different from the impact of sin on the man. And that had to do with the fact that the woman's soul is different from the male soul. And so God has designed marriage to be one man and one woman because of the way he designed men and women. Third, marriage is an earthbound illustration of Christ and the church. We know this biblically. The Bible defines what marriage is. In marriage, you have Christ and the church, and it's two different entities. They're not the same entity. Fourth, according to Romans 1, the worship of the creature, even as that works itself out in in illicit, unnatural sexual activity, is... A form of idolatry. Romans 1, 18 and following. Same-sex relations are destructive and dangerous. Study after study after study documents this. It is unhealthy for society. And what they're trying to do is maintain a facade of normalcy and legitimacy. What they want to do is... By, by legitimizing same-sex unions, they want the sanction of law that their sins are, are just fine. And the next step, the next step is that anyone who says that homosexuality is a sin is going to be guilty of hate speech or some kind of criminal, uh, speech that won't be protected by law and we'll have a whole bunch of pastors going off to jail. The homosexual marriage and the homosexual lifestyle is not parallel to a heterosexual lifestyle. Heterosexual marriages, 57% last over 20 years. There's stability there. That's a purpose for marriage. It provides stability and a context for the promotion and teaching of values to the next generation. Homosexual relationships average two to three years in length. Only 5% last over 20 years. They are incredibly unstable. Seventy percent of men are faithful in a heterosexual marriage. Eighty-eight percent of women are faithful in a heterosexual marriage. But homosexual relationships are characterized by promiscuity, and they have hundreds of sexual partners over a lifetime. In a heterosexual marriage, the man and the woman are committed, and they are faithful and stable. In homosexual relationships... Men have traditionally are uh, three to five outside partners. This is pretty normal. Even in a so-called monogamous uh, homosexual marriage or homosexual union, uh, they will each have three to five outside partners. In Holland, it's eight. Those who have been together for more than five years, not one has been completely monogamous in the studies. In lesbian relationships, they're very volatile. There's domestic and emotional violence, which is characteristic and usually in the background of, of various lesbians. Now, here's a quote from Reverend Troy Perry, who's the founder of the Metropolitan Community Church, which is the largest uh, homosexual church uh, in America. And this was from an interview in the Dallas Morning News. He said, Monogamy is not a word the gay community uses. We talk about fidelity. That means you live in a loving, caring, honest relationship with your partner. You're honest about the other men in your life as well. Because we can't marry, he says, we have people with widely varying opinions as to what that means. Some would say that committed couples uh, could have multiple sexual partners as long as there's no deception. Each couple has to decide. So there's no such thing as monogamy or faithfulness, and, and they twist the meaning of these terms. Heterosexual marriage, people live longer, have happier lives. Homosexual relationships, you have health problems, AIDS, higher risks of sexually transmitted diseases. There's three times the rate of alcoholism and drug abuse in homosexual relationships. There's much more promiscuity and a higher rate of domestic violence, and there is a shortened lifespan. In a heterosexual marriage, marriage is the best place to raise healthy children. But homosexual relationships put children at risk. And remember, marriage and family, in one sense, are all about the children. It's about the future. It's about preparing for the future, whereas homosexuality is all about me because there is no future generation to orient to. It's all about the individual gratifying his own Desires. Isaiah 5.20 said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And this is where we are in our culture. We want to define homosexual activity as normal, healthy, and good. And if you don't agree with that, then you are guilty of hate speech. So we are warping our values and reversing them. Now, can a homosexual be saved? Now, there are some people, I know you all don't believe this, but there are some people who think that it's an unforgivable sin. You can't be saved if you're a homosexual. But that's not true. Homosexuality is not an issue in salvation. No sin is an issue in salvation. The issue in salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. So if you're not saved, the issue is trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you are saved, the issue is learning to walk by means of the Spirit. And it's the same for all of us. We just have different sins. Homosexuality isn't the area of weakness that we deal with, perhaps. Uh, all Christians struggle with sins that easily beset us, according to Hebrews 12.1. We all have areas of weakness we struggle with and we struggle with during our whole lives. Christians can be bigots, adulterers, liars, thieves, murderers. The, whole, the list goes on. There's no sin that you can commit as an unbeliever that you can't commit as a believer. There's no sin that, that doesn't dominate your lifestyle as an unbeliever that may not dominate your lifestyle as a believer. Because if you're a believer and you're not walking according to the Spirit, you're walking according to the flesh, and the sin nature will just manifest itself. We live in an era today when this has been made a battle point, And this is where the battle is engaged and we have to be able to understand what these issues are and fight them on the basis of truth and not on the basis of error. And part of the thing that, ha- thing that happens with believers is we constantly get barraged with all these myths and stuff from the media and from the things we read in People magazine and, you know, all that intellectual stuff you all study all the time. And uh, it shapes the way we think. We hear it on television shows. You hear it in movies. You see uh, various uh, celebrities that you enjoy showing up in movies that have some real soft homosexual theme to it. All this is designed to desensitize the culture to the seriousness of the the social consequences of certain sins. But the Bible says that any sin that, that... destroys and attacks the basic foundational divine institutions is serious because if it's allowed to stand and if it's treated with a permissive attitude, then it leads to the ultimate destruction, both the self-destruction of a culture as well as God's divine judgment. Now, our response as believers, whenever we're dealing with somebody who has a problem with homosexuality, is to first of all treat them in grace. Jesus Christ paid for the sin. Their sin is not the issue. The issue is the cross. If they're not saved, they need to understand the gospel. If they are saved, they need to understand that God forgives them, that guilt can be dealt with because of 1 John 1.9, and that that all sin can be handled by the word of God, and there can be... A, a victory over this in their Christian life. It's happened to thousands and thousands of homosexuals who have been saved or homosexuals who have come back to their uh, Christianity. So there is a message of hope. The, what we need to be about is not a message of condemnation, but a message of hope. But then on the other hand, as citizens of the nation who have a right to vote, then we have to take what we learn from the Word of God and apply that in terms of our own personal involvement in national politics. This is just another topic why we've had to cover this. It's not one of my favorite issues to discuss, but I think it's something we all need to be aware of so that we can make decisions from a position of strength and not from a position of weakness. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have your word to go to, that it informs us about every issue in life, and that it gives us a, a value, an absolute standard by which we can judge everything, by which we can evaluate society around us and people around us, and we can Come to have an impact as believers on our society for the truth and that which is healthy and promotes uh, health and freedom and stability in a nation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study tonight and give us an attitude of grace toward those who suffer from this particular sin as well as other sins that we may stand uh, as those who can give the gospel clearly without getting it uh, cluttered up by self-righteousness and that as believers who are to function as salt and light in our culture, that we can do so from a position of knowledge and a position of strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.